Hello, beautiful people, and welcome to The Impact Code, where we take deep dives into the stories and journeys of impact and the lives of our guests. Today's guest is none other than Steven Alvarez. If you don't already know who Steven is, let me tell you a little bit about him. He is an award-winning National Geographic photographer, filmmaker, and explorer who produces global stories about exploration, adventure, culture, and archaeology. He has published over a dozen feature stories in National Geographic magazine. The magazine has sent him to from the highest peaks in the Andes to the depths of the deepest cave in the world. His latest National Geographic story on the origins of art led from early human sites on the southern coast of Africa to Paleolithic cave art caves in France and Spain. And he'll share this story in the podcast today, but Stephen was so moved by the power of humanity's earliest art that he founded the Ancient Art Archive in 2016. The archive is a nonprofit foundation dedicated to using photography and the newest image-based VR technology to preserve and share humanity's oldest artworks. His images have won awards and pictures of the year in National and Communication Arts. Stephen has also recently appeared on NPR, PBS, and CBS Saturday Morning. He's a frequent consultant and commenter on how new photographic technology is changing the world. Stephen is also a founding member of the Photo Society. I'm thrilled to have Stephen on the show today, and I'm sure you're ready to dive in. But before we do that, I want to pause and take a brief minute to thank Tower Community Bank. Tower Community Bank brings you today's episode completely free of charge, and Tower pays for everything about this podcast. They pay for the marketing, for the equipment, for the hosting. Anything to do with this podcast is covered to bring you this podcast completely free of charge because Tower cares about making the communities that we live, work, and raise families better places. That's what we're all about here. Tower is completely revolutionizing the way that communities banks operate, that the way we act, and we're doing it every single day. So as a thank you, please head on over to towercommunitybank.com and check us out. One final note before we get started with today's episode. Near the end of the episode, we're talking about a falling down boulder in San Juan County, and Stephen mentions Grand Canyon Linear. He reached out to me after the episode and mentioned that that should have been Glen Canyon Linear. We wanted to clear that up for anyone that wanted to do further research. So at the moment where you hear us talking about the Fallen Down Boulder and Grand Canyon Linear style, if you want to do any further research, just check out Glen Canyon Linear. Thanks. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Stephen Alvarez. Stephen, hello, and thank you for being on The Impact Code. It's such a tremendous honor to have you here today. I'm a big fan of your work. And before we even get rolling, I just want to take a minute to thank you for being here. Well, Brett, thanks for having me. Um, I'm excited to be here. I love the show and am thrilled to be on it. Good deal. Thank you so much. Well, Stephen, I'd love to just start today by talking about your origin story. Let's go back to sort of the beginning of your career. And I'd love to hear how you got started in photography. Yeah, so I am I am a native son of Tennessee. I, I live in Sewanee. It's the town I was born in. And I'm very much a product of the Southern Cumberland Plateau. Um, I, uh, but growing up, I always kind of felt um, inarticulate, like uh, I could never get the right words together. Um, learning to read for me was hard initially, um, as it is for a lot of people. And I, um, 
And then one day someone put a camera in my hand and I, and I went from being inarticulate to suddenly being able to say visually anything that came into my head. Wow. And that started my love of photography. Um, in college, I majored in uh, comparative religion, uh, but always took photography classes. And somewhere around my senior year, I realized that this was what I was going to do. I was going to make a living making photographs. Um, I wanted to see the world, and I figured I had to figure out a way to get someone else to pay for it. Yeah. So um, I went into journalism and very quickly became a... Um, a photojournalist. Um, I grew up doing adventurous things because it's the Southern Cumberland Plateau and you have to kind of make your own fun. So I went into <laughs> a lot of caves as a young man and, along with my friends. Um, however, I just kept doing it. Mm. Um, they all sort of stopped, but I, I kept going. And I realized as I got out of college and I started working for other photographers as an assistant, that I could take the lighting techniques that I would use to, say, light a portrait of a uh, someone for a, a financial magazine. I could take those same techniques and take them underground and begin to make photographs of the natural world that would explain why you'd want to go into a cave and what was wow. fantastic about them. Um, that portfolio of cave work from the Southern Cumberlands, from Tennessee, Alabama, and Georgia – I would always take that to New York when I was going to see magazines and people would sort of remember the portraits that I shot for a living, but they would always remember the caves. Uh, so for a time, I became the magazine photographer south of the Mason-Dixon line, largely because people could remember who I was. Mm. Um, I think having a last name Alvarez, so it's at the top of the Rolodex, probably helped too. Yeah. And um, I began working for New York magazines um, in the south. I also at the same time was teaching in Santa Fe at the Santa Fe Photo Workshops. And through that, I met a lot of National Geographic photographers and I realized, you know, this is what I want to do. I, I want to travel the world and make photographs and and go places that really people haven't gone before. Mm. And those guys, and it was a series of photographers, um, Nick Nichols primarily, introduced me to National Geographic. And, you know, again, the cave work helped because when I went to see the, the director of photography at Geographic, I had images that no one else had. Yeah. And that all comes from my growing up right here. So what inspired that first idea to take the portrait lighting techniques and take that equipment down into a cave and see what it would do. Was that just an idea that you had that you didn't know would work? Was this something that you had sort of experimented with and found that it was working? Can you dive a little further into that? Yeah. yeah so I, I have a mentor in photography, a guy named Nick Nichols. Okay. Uh, and Nick was from Florence, Alabama, and he became um, a very well-known photographer. But his first photographs were of caves, too. And um, I, I knew that Nick had done some, you know, had done this. And so... I, I didn't think, oh, I'm going to destroy my $5,000 worth of lights, which I can't even afford anyway. <laughs> I, I would just think, well, let's see what, let's see what this does. And it, it was film at the time. Yeah. 
Uh, and the great thing about film is you never really knew what you had. So you'd take a photograph, you'd set up like lights and get people, talk people into helping you and go into the dark and stand there for a long time with a light. Cause remember caves are completely black. Right. So if you need, if you want to make a photograph, you have to bring the light with you. Mm-hmm. That means someone has to carry it. And so, you know, you end up talking a lot of people in, into helping. Um, that's and so cool though. I, I guess I have a personality that's good at that. Yeah. Um, and, and it was great because, you know, we, we were all in our early twenties and we'd go off and do these adventurous things and it was loads of fun. Um, very hard in, you know, in the way that hard things can be fun. Yeah. And you would do this experiment with lights and, um, not know for days and days and days whether or not it, it had worked because you have to take the film out and get it developed. What was it like the first, the first film that you developed after trying some of these lighting techniques? Did you hit a home run immediately or was there a process to tweaking? What was that like? Oh no. Oh my God. Uh, oh no. It, it was terrible. I, I remember looking at Nick's pictures the first time and thinking, well, I could do that. How hard could that possibly be? And so I, I, you know, at the time you would use these things called flash bulbs that were straight out of the 1950s. And I, I went to a studio in, in Cowan, Tennessee, and, and I asked the guy who ran it, hey, do you have any old flash bulbs laying around? He's got, yeah, I got a room full of them. He gave them to me and he gave me a flash gun. And so I immediately went out into a cave with these flash gun and flash bulbs and shot the worst photographs that have ever been made. <laughs> I mean, just like failed completely. Um, but but failure, I think, is a really important part of the creative process. If you're not willing to fail, um, you're not going to get very far. Mm. And and so, yeah, I, I looked at the pictures. You said, "Oh man, this is terrible." I need to learn a lot more about how cameras and film work. Um, mm. And the rest is history. And the rest is history. And the, uh, is- yeah, my technique, my technique got better. Yeah, uh, well, I'd certainly say that's true. I'm, I'm very amazed by some of the, the photographs that you've taken are very iconic photos. And I will be sure to link to these in the show notes so that if you're listening, you can actually take a look at Steven's portfolio and, and just see some of the work and some of the places that he's been. It's, it's absolutely mind boggling some of the places that he's been able to take photographs. Um, Stephen, I would love to talk about that first assignment. So you get your first assignment and I think I read, was it Time Magazine, your first? Yeah. So, so this is, this is funny. I, um, it was the 1990s and I had moved back to Sewanee, Tennessee. I'd been in Maine working at the photo workshop there and, and had moved home and, um, was doing assignments around the South. Um, and this is before I'd had a big, a big uh, national assignment. And I get a phone call from my mentor, from Nick Nichols one day. And, and he says, Stephen, this lady named Christina Scalette from Time Magazine is going to call you. <laughs> I, and, and you need, you need to say yes to whatever she says. And I'm like, I'm thinking, Oh, you are so full of bull. <laughs> Time Magazine is not about to call me. And, um, but sure enough, the phone rings and, and there's a, lady on the other line and I, you know, I'm thinking Nick has put his girlfriend up to calling me and pretending like she's from Time Magazine. <laughs> Things must be really slow in his world if he has this much time. So I'm I'm humoring this lady yeah. um, and she's like, yeah, we'd like to do a big story about cave and cave science and can you do something in the, the South and can you go to Kentucky with this cave scientist? And I'm like, yeah, I, I think I can do that. Uh, and then can you go to, to New Mexico? And I was like, man, she is laying it on thick. <laughs> 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 so, 
can you go to New Mexico? It's like, yeah, I can do that. And I, I agree. Um, that later that day, this contract arrives by fax from Time magazine. And I had already said I would do all this stuff. And I, and, and so, um, I didn't really have time to be nervous about it. Uh, but that, that was night, the, my first national assignment for Time magazine. And, and it was great. I got to work with some great people. Um, got to, I, I don't know if I've ever told Christina. Actually, later I told Christina Scalay at Time that story. And she said, yeah, I thought you were pretty laid back. <laughs> <laughs> really casual, really casual about it. But, but from there, um, that was a huge boost in confidence. Mm. And so, um, I started to do more and more national magazine assignment work. And, um, uh, a few years after that, uh, I got a call from National Geographic and, and they asked me to go to Peru. Mm. Uh, and again, it was something that my mentor had helped me with. They had offered him the, the assignment and, um, he didn't want to do it, but he said, you know, call this guy in Tennessee. And it was high altitude archaeology in Peru. And, um, the, uh, the, someone had to be able to climb a 20,000 foot mountain, but also had to have studio lighting techniques. Mm. So, um, they had to be able to, um, light artifacts and there was a mummy involved so I, it was a fairly uh, unique skill set and um i did that assignment it was extremely popular and once you've done one assignment for national geographic you really don't want to work for anyone else yeah. um you know i was in peru for months on end with the soul you know just needing to make photographs and um you know my longest assignment for any other magazine had been measured in days so the ability to do really long projects, to have the resources to do that, um, and, and to have the, the interest in doing that, um, led me to, to, you know, once you do one story at National Geographic, the second proposal gets easier. Sure. And, and I had proposed this long series of stories about underground exploration. So I, I sort of made, made notes about places I wanted to go and, and look at the underground world. So. We went to Borneo, uh, went to Belize, um, uh, Oman, Mexico, um, and, and sort of did one big exploration story after another. And they culminated in this, uh, trip to Papua New Guinea where we, um, we went for three months and, uh, took 11 tons or 11 people, you know, 15 tons of gear mm -hmm. to the island of New Britain. And New Britain is in the South China Sea and it's rising very fast because it's a volcanic island, but there's limestone on it. So it has caves and it gets a huge amount of rain. And what you end up with on New Britain is, um, big whitewater rivers in caves. Wow. And it's as dangerous as exploration gets. And it's in, it's in primary jungle too. Mm. So, um, but if you look at, at like Google Maps, you see all these black holes in the island of New Britain. And these are giant sinkholes with whitewater rivers at the bottom. Wow. And so with, with a series of, uh, or with uh, another collaborator, a guy named Dave Gill, who'd led expeditions there in the eighties, I said, Dave, well, you know, in the eighties, you, you didn't get to this one cave called, called Aura. Uh, what would you say about? taking a lot of time and a lot of resources and, and going to see if we can knock off this one last place. And we put together an expedition 
And we had a great plan. We're going to take uh, really good cavers from, from the United States who are going to help me, really good cavers from the UK who are going to really lead the expedition charge. And we were going to go to New Britain, hire a freighter. And this is what we did. We hired a freighter to bring all of our equipment to a, a logging camp on the south end of the island. Then we got a helicopter to come in. And the idea is really great. We're going to get in this helicopter. and We're going to fly all of our stuff to the closest village to this sinkhole. And then we're just going to ask the villagers where it is and, and ask them to carry our stuff up there. So we do all this. 11 tons, of, you know, 11 people, tons and tons of gear, hire the freighter. Um, it's a ton of money. A lot of time, huge resources, get everything to the logging camp. The guys at the logging camp are sure we'll drive it to the end of the road. So they drive it to the end of the road. <laughs> Helicopter comes. We net load everything up there. Helicopter flies away. People at the village are just all sitting around looking at us like, what just happened? Because, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we hadn't talked to them. Hadn't told them we were coming. We just landed with all this stuff and they're, they're staring at us and we go, okay. Can you guide us to the caves? And they, they look at us like, what caves? It's like, you're kidding me. The, the caves so big, we can see them from space. It's like, we, no, we never go up on the plateau behind our house. You know, it's, it rains too much. There's nothing to eat. Why would anyone ever go up there? Wow. So we, we spent days lost in the jungle with these, these guys from the village looking for this cave, but we found it, built a base camp, and then spent three months in the jungle exploring this cave, both upstream and downstream, and just found incredible things, places no one has ever been before, and um, huge rooms, um, giant underground waterfalls. The biggest, we found a lake that was four acres, and you know, it's emerald green with um, 120-foot ceilings and a giant wow. waterfall that comes in on the side, and the only way to get to it is just tortured trip down a very small crack that runs into a river and then you swim up river forever oh man and um you know more people have stood on the surface of the moon that have been in that room and i i find it unlikely that anyone will ever go back it's just such a hard trip do you so go go, you know that well and i got done with that and i you know i thought well maybe i never need to do another cave story again um because is it ever going to get better than that? Mm. You know, have I taken photography underground as far as it's going to go? Yeah. Wow. That's a, I cannot even imagine being in a place that has had so few people in it being, if not the first, one of the first humans to set foot in getting there. I mean, what a journey. It sounds like an adventure in and of itself was just getting there. Are there moments for you as you're navigating towards these places, you don't know what's going to be at the end of the road. You don't know at the time, do you, that there's a 120 foot ceiling with a waterfall? I mean, are there times when you're questioning, is it worth it to continue or what (laughs) propels you forward? Oh, I I think every day on that trip, um, you know, there there were 11 of us in, I think every day everyone was questioning why, why are we there? It, the place, it's a really difficult place to be. Mm. While we were there, we got three and a half feet of rain. Wow. It's just so wet. And, um, and you know, you're in the jungle and the whole time, you know, I, at the time I had very young children and there was no, almost no contact with the outside world. Mm. And, uh, so, you know, you're missing a lot at home and you think, well, is this really worth it? Um, and you know, that, that, 
and you don't know. There's no guarantee. Um, we had gone to explore this river that we could see in the sinkhole, but we explored it upstream to a place where, where the river comes out from under rocks and we couldn't go. Same thing downstream. And it was only by looking in the jungle for days and days on end and going to, to each little sinkhole that we found the entrance into the, the rest of the cave system. Wow. And we were just, we were worked hard, but a lot of it is just being lucky mm-hmm. uh, and being in the right place at the right time. Um, but yeah, you never know. That's the thing about cave exploration is you never know what's there until you go. You, you can't see it any other way. It's not like climbing mountains where you have a pretty good idea of, of what the route's going to be like mm-hmm. because you can see it from the outside. Can you take us to that moment where you, you go through, it sounds like a pretty small opening. You're swimming upstream and then it just opens up. What was it well, like? I, yeah. So the, the trip in there, you actually go in a tiny sinkhole in the jungle and repel down a couple hundred feet into a narrow crack and the crack, but the crack is tall. It's, it's about shoulder width apart. And wow. the, the limestone there is very young. So it's very not well consolidated. It's very crumbly. And you spend most of your time chimneying down this crack for a kilometer. Oh my God. Uh, and, and the rocks, no one's been in there before, right? Or, or very few people, just the people on the team. And the rocks are fall, you know, fall off the every time, every other thing you touch crumbles. Oh, it's wow. Just terrifying. Yeah. And you finally get out in a little bit bigger passage where you can walk on the floor and then that intersects this river. Um, and then you swim upstream and it is wonderful because you're in this huge space going upstream and you try not to think too much about where you are yeah. <laughs> because it, cause it'll, it, I mean, for me, it, I, uh, there are a lot of, there, there were other people on that team and they have different experiences. But for me, if I think about it too much, it would just freak me out yeah. because um, you're so far beyond any human help. Yeah. Um, wow. You know, it, it's, and then you get into the space and, it's loud because of the white water in, uh, because, you know, the big waterfall coming in and it's so big, you can't really see it. And, um, because the headlamp on your head will only throw so far. So you can kind of see this, you know, you can see part of the lake, but you can barely see the waterfall, but you can't see the other side mm-hmm. and you can't see the ceiling. And the only way to really understand what's there is to make a photograph of it. Wow. And that's the part about the whole thing of exploration that I, that I love is that making photographs is part of the exploration process. And, you know, if I couldn't share that experience through pictures, I, I wouldn't do it. I, I wouldn't spend the time away from my family. Um, if it was, if it couldn't be shared. Mm. That's really powerful. And, and I can certainly understand that from just looking at your portfolio and capturing, I would imagine just a, a small percentage of what you're feeling in some of those moments, or maybe it's the moment when that photo is developed and you, you actually get to see what it looks like with, with yeah. the light and with the, the depth and the beauty that's there. I, it's just absolutely breathtaking. Steven, what have you learned about fear. So you talked about being in really small spaces. I know I like even devil step. I was looking at your crawl through video on YouTube and 
for me, I'm thinking one, I don't know if I could fit through there. You know, I probably weigh 40, 50 pounds more than you do. I don't know if I could fit through there or not. But two, I don't know if mentally, like, I don't know how I would handle being in a space that small. Uh, what have you learned about fear through all of your exploration? Uh, well, fear is highly variable, right? Because, um, and it all depends on on perceived risk. Mm-hmm. Um, what you know, people ask often would ask you know about the dangers, and I would point out that the single most dangerous thing I ever do on assignment is get in a car and drive to the airport. Mm-hmm. That's fantastically more dangerous than than almost anything else. Yeah. Um, but we all do that every day, so no one thinks about it as being dangerous. Yeah, and. Um, you know, th- there are good reasons to be scared of tight spaces because they're really unpleasant. Um, but you learn that you can, if you can get your head through something, kind of the rest of your body will follow. You just have to have a really good reason to do mm. it. And like you, you mentioned Devil Step, that's a an art cave at the head of the Sequatchie Valley that has really fantastic Mississippian era artwork in it. Mm-hmm. And it's worth being uncomfortable to be able to get in there and see that, to be able to get in there and document it. But but there are other places, there are caves in the South that I will go to and I'll look at a really tight place and, you know, being my age now and just look at it and go, nah, there's nothing <laughs> I need to see that bad. <laughs> oh. Be with other people and just be like, oh, you know, let me know how it goes. But I, <laughs> I know what it's like. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. As I was looking at the list of sort of your work and the places that you've been, you've you've mentioned a couple of them up the top of the Andes. You've been in the world's deepest cave. You've been all over the world to some of the most beautiful um, art sites, to some of the most beautiful uh, just sites in general. <laughs> um, is there one place that maybe stands out because it caused you to change? Well, yeah, yeah. That that's a that's it, it that's a transition in the work that I've done I think I um I used to be very interested in being the first person to go somewhere or or seeing being part of a team that really did exploration that pushed our knowledge about the physical world and that's an incredible thing to do and it, it makes you do things like go to the deepest cave in the world or the you know the go to New Britain for months on end mm-hmm. But as I got older, I started to be much more interested in what caves preserve because they, they, they are like time capsules. Um, they're good preservation environments and began much, to be much more interested in the people who had been in the cave before me and what they had left. And I, um, I was working in Paris doing a story about underground Paris, which was very cool. And my family was with me uh, on assignment for in Paris, which was also very cool. And at, at the end of that assignment, I was really tired of going underground, really tired of being underground. Mm. And I, um, uh, my wife, April, and I decided wh- what we need to do is take a vacation and take the kids and drive to the south of France and go to, um, go to the beach, go to Baritz and just sit on the beach and watch kids play in the, sur- in the surf. And it's going to be really nice and fun. And, um, April said, okay, we're going to go down there, but I've arranged this trip to the Dordogne because I, I want you to go to Lascaux, which is, um, a famous art cave in France. 
Um, it was discovered in the 19, in the 1940s and it has 14,000 year old paintings in it. And Brett, I was like a petulant child. I had been underground every day for months on end and I was just sick of it. Mm. And I was like, I don't want to go down and see a bunch of bad caveman art. Mm. I think I actually said those words yeah. and, um, to April and she said, no, we're going to go. I've made the reservations. Uh, so we go down. Um, and you don't even go in the real cave. Um, you go into a replica, but the way the tour works is this. You're, you're with a group of, um, of other tourists and you go inside the Lasco replica, uh, and the lights are off and then the lights come on and there's artwork on the ceiling and, and they're very good reproductions of what's in the actual cave. And the lights came on and I was just blown away by how sophisticated the art I was seeing was. And I, I knew immediately that, that first off, my wife is much smarter than me, <laughs> um, which is good life advice right there. Mm. And, um, that everything I thought about human cognition was wrong. I, I had assumed, I think like most people that people in the past were primitive and were much more sophisticated. And here's artwork that's every bit as sophisticated as anything that you'll see today made 14,000 years ago. Wow. And um, that led me to a National Geographic story. And, and my process at Geographic has always been, um, if I have an idea and I think it could be a Geographic story, I'll start the research process, which can be you know months to years. And if I'm still interested at the end of research, I can probably make a story about it. So I started researching a story about why we became artists, what art does for us, mm -hmm. which is really a story about human cognition. And in doing that research and then doing the story later, I went from the oldest art sites in on the southern coast of Africa, where we start making paint 100,000 years ago wow. through the great cave paintings of Europe. And um, doing the story, I talked my way or my, my fixer talked my way into a cave called Chauvet. And Chauvet was discovered, well, discovered by modern humans in 1996. So, you know, relatively recently. Mm -hmm. And it has paintings in it that are 36,000 years old. Wow. And, um, it is, you know, it, it, it is incredibly fantastic artwork, but it's also the, the most heavily guarded place in France. I think it's, um, mm. Very difficult to get into. It took two years of asking, um, two years of, of um, an assistant of mine working on it almost full time. Wow. And, you know, there's a submarine door welded to the, the front of the cave. Um, wow. I, I, once, I once photographed the Bank of France's gold reserves. And getting into photograph the gold reserves was easier than getting into photograph Chauvet. Oh, my gosh. But, 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 um, the the Ministry of Culture finally relented after two years of asking and said, yeah, okay, we're going to give you as much time as we gave Werner Herzog when he made his movie. I was like, oh, great. They said six hours. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, but uh, they, they gave me six hours and, and we go down to the cave and the curator and the assistant curator are there. And they're going to go in with us um, because obviously you, you can't go in the cave by yourself. Right. And the assistant curator said, listen, I'm going to tell you what I tell everyone. You have six hours. That's actually plenty of time. 
don't try to do anything the first time in this cave. We're going to go in for two hours. I'm going to show you everything. It's so overwhelming. Just don't try. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, clearly they weren't very professional, but I am. So I'm going to get something done. <laughs> and right. he was, he was so right. I, it, it's Brett being in front of a piece of artwork that's 36,000 years old is just a mind boggling experience mm. because it's like having someone talk to you across this gulf of time. You can't begin to imagine, mm-hmm. you know, 36,000, 36 millennia. That's an yeah, unbelievable those, amount of time. Yeah. And, and those people, they don't share anything with us. They, we don't have a common culture. We don't have a common language. Our economies are so different. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they hunted mammoths for a living. Um, they did not have glass. They did not have metal. Um, you know, we can't understand their lives. They couldn't understand our lives. And yet the artwork is still effective. Mm. And, um, it's a profoundly moving experience. And that after doing that, I, um, I, you know, came out of the cave almost a very different person. I, uh, scaled back my magazine work dramatically and changed the focus of my life from shooting magazine stories to a, a foundation I started called the Ancient Art Archive. And it is um, dedicated to preserve and share humanity's oldest stories, so rock art and cave art. Um, and, and I think these very old stories uh, emphasize our shared humanity. Mm-hmm. When, when you look at a piece of old artwork and you see how sophisticated it was, you, you realize that people in the past share so much with us and, and it, it makes me feel more human seeing that. Mm-hmm. I think that's a really beautiful way to say that. And that's a really powerful story, Stephen. It, I mean, think about, I, I was just, I'm thinking about April and her sort of making that decision for you <laughs> Yeah, right. and how many moments in my life I've had similar experiences where, you know, Courtney will say, Hey, we're going to do this. And I'm like, oh, I really don't want to do that. And then I, I guess I will just cause I have to, I'm not going to like it, but I'll go, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and then it ends up being something that just completely changes the trajectory of my life. And I'm hearing you tell this story and I'm like, that one moment completely changed your trajectory and the impact that you're able to have for the rest of your life. So pretty cool to point that all back to April. Well, I, I, you know, the most important decision you're going to make in your life is who you marry, right? Mm-hmm. It's, um, it, it, uh, I'm, I'm very lucky to have such a good partner with her. Um, couldn't do, certainly couldn't do what I do without the, the support that I get at home. Yeah. Um, but I met April at, at National Geographic. She used to run foreign syndication for the magazine. So okay. she, or for the, so she, uh, certainly understands the world, uh, yeah. that, that I inhabit. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. So you now are, you founded and you're now running the Ancient Art Archive. Can you talk a little bit about, and you shared a little bit, but can you share sort of what is the mission of the Ancient Art Archive and what are you really trying to do with that foundation? Right. So the mission of the, of the archive is to preserve and share humanity's oldest stories. So, and the way we go about doing that, um, is through with photography, uh, with videography, uh, very traditional journalism techniques, but we, also have thoroughly embraced um, 
3D modeling in a virtual reality and augmented reality. So what um, originally we we thought, well, I'll, we'll just go and make images of these places and try to preserve that experience in in a in a photograph of what it's like to stand before a piece of truly old artwork. And um, I realized very quickly that some of the places are so hard to get to, either mm. um, physically or with access, that just making images, that, that we could do more than that. Um, and so we embraced this 3D modeling technique. Uh, it's called photogrammetry, where we take thousands of overlapping photographs and then use, use software to map each pixel in 3D space. And from that, we can build VR experiences. From that, we can build, um, you know, very normal FX experiences. Um, and, and put a person inside that, that 3D model virtually. Mm. So to give them a, a, a virtual experience of what it would be like to go there. And you mentioned Devil Step. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was our first, uh, our first big VR AR modeling project. And, um, uh, we did that with the help of Tower. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Um, the, the support from Tower for that project is, has been really fantastic. And so what we did was we built uh, a model of the entire state park and then the cave and the artwork inside the cave. And then we fly a virtual camera through that. Um, and it's a VR camera. So it's a 360 degree video. So if you have on a headset, you can, you can turn and look any way you want. If you have it on a phone, um, you can scroll with your finger mm. and then working with the descendant communities, because this is a story that, that's straight out of the Muskokian tradition. We came and, and also working with Jan Shimmick from University of Tennessee, who's a, a, one of our founding board members mm-hmm. and has done tremendous work on um, cave art and rock art in the South. Mm. We developed a script. Uh, Dustin Mater, who is um, one of our advisors, is a Chickasaw, um, Chickasaw uh, tribal member and artist in Ada, Oklahoma. With him came up with the script and he narrates it mm. um, to, to give a very curated experience that that explains the world what the worldview of those people who made that artwork what it is um what they were probably trying to do inside that cave and so and it answers a couple of things one is that you know you can't go into the cave the cave is closed for preservation's sake um so we provide virtual access to the place and um and you get to have a better experience than if you could go into the cave because a direct descendant of the, of the artist who made that artwork is talking to you about it. Yeah. It's so powerful. And everyone who's listening, I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes. You can, I have it open on my screen here right now. And I've, I've been exploring the past several days in sort of preparation for our conversation. And it's, it's mind boggling one, the quality of these, uh, of these virtual experiences that it's all, it's all there and it's in high definition and you can literally like look around in any direction and you can see the cracks, you can see the texture of the rocks, you can see every marking that's, that's on the, on the walls there. And it's, it's absolutely mind boggling. So Steven, this is such phenomenal work and it's really cool to be able to have that experience without being physically there. So first, thank you for creating these. Well, I, that, it's beautiful. 
Well, well, I mean, it's really my our honor to be able to do it. And working with the descendant communities is so exciting mm-hmm. and enriching. Um, you know, the 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 Chickasaw, the Cherokee, um, the Creek, the Choctaw were removed from here. Right. So their stories are still on the landscape. Um and to uh to to have a reconnection to those stories is um is you know, a, a great honor to be able to, to help in. And it tells us more about where we live, right? It and does. that's, that's the thing that I like is to reach out to communities around, um, the area to give us all a, a deeper understanding of this fantastic place we live in. So we have this project called the Mural of America, where we're looking at 10, um, large scale rock art, cave art or geoglyph sites as a way to look at, at pre-Columbian, you know, pre-contact intellect and culture um, that that exists on the landscape. And Devil Step Hollow was the first. We're now working at a, at a site in Utah called uh, the Rochester Creek Panel. We're doing that with the help of National Geographic Society. And um, we're doing the same thing. We're building a large-scale model. Uh, and then um, the, the Ute, uh, the Hopi, and the Navajo along with archaeologists and land managers there will help us curate a story about that so that um even if you can't get get out to that part of Utah you can still have an appreciation of what was happening on the landscape. Mm. I love this idea of reconnecting these places with the people who were displaced and and not only reconnecting but giving an active voice uh of narration giving the curation of the story back to the people who it truly belongs to. I think, Stephen, that's really important. And frankly, I think that the displacement of the Native American people in general is is not talked about enough. And I think it's, it's a tragedy doesn't even begin to cover, I think, the depth of, of sorrow um, that these stories um, and being physically removed um, would have on a, a group of people. I think so much about who we are as people is based on where we can look back to and know we're from and to be involuntarily removed from those spaces has an undeniable impact. Can you talk a little bit about how in reconnecting um, we can start to um, provide maybe not healing, but provide light to these types of stories? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves are very important. And, um, one of the stories we tell ourselves about Americans is that, uh, you know, North America, um, was largely a wilderness when Europeans arrived. And, 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 and the answer to that is, well, sort of, um, because of the way European diseases interacted with, with Native American populations, um, large swaths of Native American culture were just simply wiped mm-hmm. out by disease before there's really meaning, meaningful contact. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so much gets lost there. And so when, um, Europeans are coming into the Americas, they are kind of coming into a deep, they're coming into a depopulated country, uh, continent. It, it's kind of like walking into a garden. Moments after the the person who maintained the garden had left, mm. 
And that's, that's one of the things we're trying to address with this project is just to, to have a, 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 a long, deep conversation about, about, you know, well, what about the first 20,000 years mm-hmm. uh, of human history in North America? Yeah. And, um, I, I think that's a good conversation to have, especially as as we look towards 250 years of the United States mm-hmm. uh, and and look to how we're going to celebrate that. And there's a tremendous amount to celebrate. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I'd like like us to talk about and celebrate is uh, that first 20,000 years, because there is so much in there and it is so rich mm-hmm. and Native American culture is so rich. And it's um, the... There are these great artworks on the landscape where the people of the past are speaking to the future, mm. and we just have to listen to them. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And it's it's hard to imagine that you know the United States is only like you said two hundred fifty years old, and that there's literally twenty thousand years of human history before that. It's it's magnitudes greater than the amount of time that the U S has existed and there's so much rich history there to explore. And I think one of the cool things as, as I've looked here at just devil's step hollow for, for instance, the being able to be even just virtually in a space that is a, a sacred space, a ceremonial space. There's something about that that is just awe inspiring and it's humbling can you talk about being in spaces like that and, and what impact that has and just knowing that 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 years ago that this was a sacred space? Yeah, I, um, well, I think it's still a sacred space. I mean, it, it's hard to drive up the, the Sequatchie Valley um, and, and not understand that what an extraordinary place it is. It, you know, it's this hundred mile long straight walled valley mm-hmm. that's just it, it's as dramatic as anything I've seen anywhere and um um and at the head of it is a cave and of course it was a sacred space mm-hmm. it, it's the source of the river um it it makes a lot of sense that it would be there the thing that I like about what we're able to do there is um based on some some work by very very good archaeologists um begin to recreate what it might have looked like in the day, mm. you know, when it was being used. So it, within the big chamber of Devil Step Hollow, there are little bitty balls of mud all over the ceiling mm. that were thrown from the ground up. And each one of those balls of mud has a uh, burned cane torch fragment in it. Mm. So what were they doing? Uh, lighting those cane torches, little piece of cane torch on fire and throwing up on the ceiling and they would burn on the ceiling. Wow. I mean, that's just, that's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, it, it, it's, it's, um, and you know, you can't get into that space without, without feeling some of that power. Yeah. Um, and I, um, I, th- I think it's important for us all to, to remember that you know, if, even the, you know, this is not my tradition, right? I'm, I'm raised in the Davidic traditions, mm-hmm. like, like probably most of your listeners are. Um, but that's still someone's important story, mm-hmm. and it's important to treat them with with respect, even if you you know you don't have to believe what other people believe to respect the belief. Yeah, and um, 
that's what I always try to go to go into those spaces with is, well, this is not my belief system. Um, however, I have tremendous respect for the, the people who had, who put this story there for what they believe, for the way they saw the world. It's become a bit of a lost art too, to just be able to look at it and not feel like you have to necessarily believe what someone else believes, but just respect it and, and yeah. oh, respect yeah. that there's, thousands of years of tradition that have gone into that and uh, thousands of years of, of thought and communication. And um, yeah, so that I, I love that you brought that up because I do think that's a, it's a ideology that if more of us could adopt, I think would allow uh, many more people to feel uh, safe and respected and valued um, yeah. for sure. Yeah. We, uh, you know, we, so we have education activities that we build around these sites. And, um, one of the ways I, I explain the education activity, because, uh, the one we built for Devil Step, um, we take people through or, and they're aimed at kids. They're aimed at, at grades three through eight. And we take them through what symbols are, how symbols are used, how symbols are used in your life, how symbols were used in Native American life. We have Dustin talk to them about symbols he uses in his artwork. Mm. And really what we do is we look at this as a, an exercise in empathy because what we're trying to do is get the kids to understand what it might have been like to be in a cave 2,000 years ago, crouching down, painting a um, a woodpecker on the wall. And if you can get someone to do that, to think just for a minute about that, uh, that, that opens empathy mm. and empathy is a learned skill and yeah. it needs to be practiced. That's right. That's right. It's well said. Steven, as I was looking through some of your work, I, I noticed, um, the, I think it's pronounced Mon Monte Castillo site, um, mm -hmm. in Spain. Um, it, yeah. and it talked about that there's a series of caves there that are on a uh, almost pyramid shaped mountain. Um, and the oldest of those pieces of art, uh, was dated back, I think 36,000 years, something like that. You mentioned the, the art in France that you saw the 36,000 years. And then these places, um, become significant for long periods of time. So the Monte Castillo, the thing that stuck out to me about that specific place was that for the next 25,000 years, people were making art there. And you have this concept that you've talked about a little bit in a lecture that I saw online called Persistence of Place. Um, and it absolutely fascinates me. Can you talk a little bit, and I know that's a really long topic, but can you just give a brief <laughs> intro to what is Persistence of Place and why do certain places stick for 25,000 years? Yeah. Yeah. Persistence of Place is a, um, it, it comes up in, in, uh, in archaeology, it comes up in rock art a lot. And that's that certain places become important. And culturally, they stay important across cultures for millennia. And, um, Monte Castillo is a great example. Um, it was the, the big cave there is called El Castillo. And it was originally a Neanderthal mm. habitation site. So it, it even predates humans. Wow. Uh, and, and, the oldest artwork is 40 plus thousand years old. Um, wow. And, uh, 
there's 20,000 plus years of, of tradition of making artwork in that place. And it's not unique by any means in Europe. There are, there are lots of places where you'll have 20,000 years of tradition of going into a space and, and making artwork. Mm. And we see it here. We see it in the Americas. Um, there, there are many sites in the West. Uh, Three Rivers is a good example. That one blew me and, away, by the way. Oh, yeah. There Amazing. are 20... <laughs> 22,000 individual images at Three Rivers. Oh. So it, it's it's a hilltop um, by uh, White Sands, New Mexico, that became important um, and stays important across cultures uh, for thousands and thousands of years. Why? I don't know. I mean, I, w- I wish I did. Mm. I uh, Yeah, if anyone knows, write it up and collect your PhD. Um <laughs> It's, yeah. um, it's just something that we see an awful lot mm. that, um, but that, that's the thing about artwork on the landscape is, uh, it's there for everyone to see. So once you have a place marked, um, that, that draws other people to it and it, it becomes confusing because you can never, it's hard to tell chronologies oftentimes. Um, yeah, it's easier and sometimes easier in caves than it is out on the open landscape. Um, yeah. And, but I saw the persistence. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Please finish. Well, I was just going to say that persistence of place is, I mean, it's, it's really something we see a lot. And, um, I, and then you see it in, in Mesoamerica mm-hmm. where temples are built on top of temples are built on top of temples, but you see that in Europe as well. Um, yeah. It's, you know, it, to me, it's one of those things that is just, I think there's just certain places that just have a sacredness about them that you, you be, you're at that. And that's hard to explain with, with facts and with numbers, but there's something about certain places, the head of the Sequatchie Valley. Um, mm-hmm. There's several places out West. Uh, Sedona is one of my favorites where, you know, you go to Sedona and there's just something about it that just feels, uh, you know, like there's something more to it. Like there's something deeper happening there and that's not a scientific term at all. And so, and I realize that, but I, I just think there's something so interesting about these spaces and, and that the, I think there is, there's something that connects humans across time and spaces like this. And it's a, a place where people can go to create, go to tell stories, go to remember, go to communicate, like you said, across ages and that's a really powerful and really beautiful thing well well that's well said um yeah it it is it is and it's um even if you don't share the cultural connection as most of us really don't to the artwork in the americas you can still appreciate the power Mm. you can still appreciate the beauty of the artwork you can still appreciate the power of the place and with rock art with cave art with you know, these massive geoglyphs we have on the landscape. Um, you can't separate the artwork from the place. They're, they are into intimately entwined. And, um, while we can look at the images from a remove, uh, there is nothing like standing in front of a panel or stay or say going to Serpent Mound in Ohio, mm-hmm. where there is a 1300 foot long snake on the landscape. Mm-hmm. And the physicality of it, you, you just, you cannot separate the artwork from, from the place. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's well said as well. 
Um, another one that this blew my mind that it was the rock that had, it looked like it had fallen. Um, there's, there's drawings on the rock that are sort of horizontal. They look like the person was standing sideways, but it turns out that this was a rock that was elevated somewhere, happened to fall at almost an exactly 90 degree angle. And then there was more art than placed vertically. Um, where was that rock? Yeah, so so that you're you're talking about a uh, a boulder that's in San Juan County, Utah, okay. and um, uh, rock art sometimes pl- you know it plays out over ge- geologic time and human time play out differently, mm-hmm. and um, you know just on different scales. But in in this case, there's a style called Grand Canyon Linear, uh, which is archaic. It's a very old, you know, five six thousand years old, and there are these incredible Grand Canyon Linear style figures and, and it, it's a fabulous style that has um very evocative uh anthropomorphic figures that are are kind of elongated mm-hmm. and um and this is all carved into the rock um so they're petroglyphs pecked into the rock and then at some point in the past this rock rotates 90 degrees and then the ancestral puebloans which is the the culture that becomes the hopi and zuni um, they have a very distinctly different style of artwork. So at 90 degrees along the bottom of this rock are all these ancestral Puebloan images and they're, they're sheep and they're, um, they, there's, they're human figures with, that have ducks on their heads. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're bear paws. And so you see geologic time and human time play out in the same panel. It's truly mind blowing. It, it it is. It absolutely is mind blowing. It's so cool. Well, Stephen, I've got a couple more questions I want to want to talk through with you. The first, I want to ask you about the program uh, that you started to sort of introduce these concepts and and the Mural of America project to schools. Can you can you dive into a little bit why why that's important to you and and what that program is is trying to accomplish? Sure. Yeah. So, uh, one thing that we're trying to think through carefully at the ancient art archive is, you know, audience. Um, you can make anything you want, but, but you ought to think about who it's for. Mm. And if we're going to do conservation with, with the small C, uh, in the long run, um, we really need to, to introduce people to the concepts of, uh, of preservation young Mm. and we need to, we need to do it, um, in a way that's fun and exciting and accessible to them. Uh, but more than that, uh, oftentimes, uh, rock art, cave art is just not well known locally. So one of the, the issues that I found when I was working at the head of the Sequatchie, uh, you know, doing, doing 3D modeling of a cave takes a long time. Mm. Uh, many trips into the cave. So the state park was very nice and they, they gave me a place, me and my assistant a place to stay up there. Wow. And I spent days on end and I ride a bike. So I, I would go for bike rides up and down the, the highway. And, um, clearly I'm not from there and I'd stop to talk to people <laughs> and they would say, well, you know, what are you doing? Uh, and I said, well, I'm working at the state park. Uh, they'd be like, you mean Fall Creek Falls? It's like, no, the state park that adjoins your property. <laughs> um, I, I have no idea what's there. It's like, well, there's fabulous artwork inside this cave. Mm. And it, you know, it, it, you know, people don't, don't realize what's immediately right there, what, what, yeah. what the story of their own landscape is. And um, that's really true in schools. Um, 
And so we designed with with our partnership with Google Arts and Culture um, and our our Native American storytelling partners, and also with advice from the Yale Child Development Center, um, came up with a place-based education program around the Devil Step Hollow site. So right now it's one activity, and we're, we began rolling it out in Grundy County um, last fall, and um, it went very well. Uh, I was sort of blown away by the reception from the kids. So oh, that's awesome. it's an informal activity that, that the kids can do either on their own or in, in a directed environment. And we, um, we ask them to make their own artwork and to think about how symbols are used in their lives. And while doing that, talk to them about well, did you know Tennessee has 10,000 caves in it? Did you know that one of these caves is right next to, you know, uh, really right at the head of the Sequatchie? Mm. Uh, did you know that Native Americans used it as a, as a ceremonial space? And in general, the kids don't know this. Yeah. And it's aimed at giving people a more nuanced understanding of the place they live. Mm. And it's also, I have to say, the most gratifying part of the work because, I mean, if you ever want to be inspired, go into an after school program and talk to the kids because they are so smart. Ah, that's and awesome. So hungry for information. Um, and being able to provide it at all is just fabulous. Yeah. I mean, obviously our show, we care so much about people who are making an impact on the world around them. And I think, I mean, your art does that in, in a beautiful way. It's so impactful to see the pictures that you've taken since the beginning of your career and, and all the way up until now. And I think this is just another way to sort of expand exponentially the work that you're doing and to allow it to have a, like you said, the capital C conservation, like to, to build that mindset into kids um, at a young age is is such a beautiful idea and it, it's teaching respect. It's teaching, uh, connecting back to where they are from and that there's historical significance, that there's story, um, that there's uh, meaning beyond, you know, the last 250 years. And I think all of those things are just tremendously important. And I think it's, it's wonderful that somebody is doing that work. Well, 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 thank you. And the thing that I've, you know, have has been made obvious is that, that kids, they love deep history. Yeah. They, they love uh, thinking because it, it, it excites their imaginations. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they probably will not go on to a career in conservation or, or archaeology or however, they'll be curious about their world. Yeah. They'll be curious about stories. And it, isn't that really what we want is people to be curious about the world? Yeah. Um, aren't, aren't those better citizens, more informed citizens, uh, more engaged people? And, um, the the other thing is, I mean, I I was born here. Mm-hmm. I was born on the Southern Cumberland, Cumberland Plateau, and and I love it. And it is a fabulous place. And people who don't grasp that, I mean, it sort of makes me mad. Mm-hmm. Um, it, but you know, it's understandable if you grow up here, yeah. uh, and you 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 never really think much of the place you live. Um, until someone from the outside usually comes and, and gets you to look at it. And I, I just want the people around these sites, whether it's here in, uh, in the Sequatchie Valley or it, around the Rochester Creek panel or any of our other sites to really appreciate the place they live. Mm. 
uh, because it's extraordinary. It really is. Yeah. That's something that struck me from our first conversation, Stephen, was just the passion that you have for the, the Sequatchie Valley area. And you're someone who's been all over the world in some of the arguably the most magnificent places. And you could live anywhere, really. I mean, I know you have connection to Swanee, but what is it about the, the area that sort of draws you back in? Well, some of it, is, it it's home. Mm-hmm. And, um, well, the, the other morning, my wife and I were sitting on our front porch and, you know, it, it's, it's not quite spring, but you can hear the birds and now you hear the, the water dripping. And we felt like the richest people in the world mm. because we get to live in the summer, Southern Cumberland Plateau. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's home. Uh, but, but there's a deep spirituality to this place. Yeah. And, um, and that's always resonated with me. It's always brought me back. And yeah, I, I could live anywhere. The magazine never cared where I lived. Um, and the archive certainly doesn't. Um, and I choose to live here. Uh, and I just, I want other people to appreciate it like I do. Yeah. I think that's powerful. And hopefully this message will help people do that. Stephen, is there anything that we haven't covered today that, that you want to push out in the world that you want to share? Um, I, I think we've covered most things. I, you know, the world, if you just appreciate your own world fully, it, it is, it's a tremendous place, mm-hmm. um, no matter where you are. And that's, that's something that, that my life has just driven home to me time and time and time again. And, and most of us are so lucky. You know, I, I know in particular, I am so lucky in what I've gotten to do in my life. Um, but a lot of your listeners are very lucky. And I, I think that it's very important for us who, who have, you know, the world has been generous to in one way or another to be generous back. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's what makes the world a better place. I couldn't agree more. And I think that's a, that's a great place to, to start to wrap up our, our episode today, Stephen. Before we do that, I've got one final question and then um, I'd love to know where people can find you. Uh, the final question being for someone who's just starting out and they, they want to do big things in the world, but they're, they're having trouble uh, finding that first step. What advice would you give them? Uh, for, well, find something you love, mm-hmm. find something you love, find something that that you love, that you specialize in. I started life as a photographer and the advice I got, which was good advice, was specialize. Mm. You know, as a photographer, it was take pictures of some, figure out something that you know more about or that you take pictures better of than anyone else. Yeah. And, um, you know, that, that advice is find something you love and, specialize in that and that will lead you to other things and so that's that's my advice to people find something that you really are passionate about and go with that and see where it leads you Mm -hmm. could take you some beautiful places that's for sure that's very well said Stephen. where can people find you if they're if they're interested in learning more so you you can find uh the ancient art archive at ancient artarchive.org. We are a 501c3 nonprofit uh, that, and we exist purely on, um, on contributions. So 
Uh, you can find us there on Instagram. You can find us at ancient, uh, Instagram.com slash ancient art archive. And same on Facebook. And then you can find me at, at Alvarez photo. Um, and on Instagram, I am S Alvarez photo. Perfect. Well, everybody, I highly encourage you. If you're not familiar with Steven's work already, look him up. I'll link to a lot of his work in the show notes. I'll link to all the links he just gave in the show notes. Um, it is well worth exploring. I think you will, your perspective on ancient art and on the world around you uh, will very likely be changed. Steven, thank you so much for being on the Impact Code today and, and for taking time to share some amazing stories. You're doing some great work, my friend. Well, thanks so much, Brett. It's I appreciate you and um, I absolutely appreciate Tower. Uh, y'all are doing tremendous work. Yeah. Well, hopefully we can continue to partner with you as you continue to do great work in the world. All right. We'll take care. All right. Thanks. Bye. And that's a wrap. I want to pause and just say, wow, thank you to Steven for being on the show. The stories that you shared, the pictures that I've seen, my mind is still just blown from this episode. And so I want to shoot you a tremendous heartfelt thanks for being on the Impact Code, Steven, and for taking the time to share your stories with me and with our audience. It, it means the world. If you happen to enjoy today's episode, it would be a huge honor if you would click the share button, share it with some friends, share it with someone you're thinking of, share it on social and tag us at Tower Community Bank, or you can tag me at BA Hollenbeck. Sharing this episode with your friends is one of the best ways to get the word out about our show. If you haven't already, please go ahead and click either that follow or subscribe button so that you never miss the newest episode that comes out and you're always up to date on everything that's going on with the impact code. If you haven't yet, also give us a rating. You can give us a five-star rating. It takes just a couple taps. It doesn't take much time at all. And it makes a huge difference in other people's ability to find the impact code and to also listen in. Thanks so much for your time and for your attention today. I know there's many places that you could spend listening to great content all over the internet. The fact that you chose to be here with us today means the world to me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All the links that Stephen and I discussed will be in the show notes, so feel free to click the show notes and go ahead and find and check out all of Stephen's work. It will absolutely blow your mind. I can promise you that. One final big thank you to Tower Community Bank for bringing you today's episode completely free of charge. If you're not sure who Tower Community Bank is, go ahead on over to www.towercommunitybank.com and check us out. I promise it will be worth your time and it helps support the show. That is all for today, my friends. I'm looking forward to seeing you back here for the next episode of The Impact Code. Bye.